Hello and welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 24, the effect of intraarticular triamcinolone versus saline on knee cartilage volume and pain in patients with knee osteoarthritis, a randomized controlled trial. This was published in JAMA in 2017 and is really a great study to talk about. So for background, we all do these steroid injections. People come in with OA, they feel Tylenol, probably celecoxib, maybe an NSAID, and they're still having symptoms. We sit them down, talk to them, say that this injection may help, give an injection, and see how they do. Bring them back three months later, and if they did well, often we'll keep doing them. Now the problem with these injections is that there's probably a powerful placebo component to them. Sticking a needle into someone's knee and telling them you're giving them magic medicine to make them feel better, it's probably going to make them feel better. And although we don't think that there's a significant cost to them, you are putting steroid into a joint space, and there's a fear that it could result in loss of cartilage, loss of bone density, etc. over a long period of time. So to that end, these authors decide to perform a very large randomized controlled trial pitting steroids against saline. So the patients that got into this trial had to be 45 years or older, and they had to have knee osteoarthritis defined by the American College of Rheumatology classification criteria. For this study, you had to have Womax scores uh, greater than 2 but less than 8, so you know some significant symptoms from pain, as well as some sort of radiography. It's kind of complicated and how they decided which part of the joint was going to be the index joint. I'm not going to get into that, but for now, just suffice it to say that you had to have osteoarthritis to get into the study. Exclusion criteria were other disorders affecting the joint, sepsis in the past, astronecrosis, recent use of steroids, doxycycline, glucosamine, chondroitin, recent injections, etc., a number more. All of them were pretty reasonable, a little broader than I usually like, but your average patient with OA could have easily gotten into this study, and that's what you want to see with inclusion and exclusion criteria. Randomization was good. They're stratified by um, the grade of uh, osteoarthritis on radiology and uh, sex. Otherwise, they um, were one-to-one, which makes sense for this study. The intervention itself was either one milliliter of 0.9% sodium chloride or one milliliter of triamcinolone. Now, neither group got lidocaine, which is typical practice for people who do this. I don't think that matters, but it's a note that they're probably diverging from what you do. Both injections were done every three months for two years, which I like. They gave it a long enough time frame to really see some benefit or some sort of risk occur. Now, how did they monitor for toxicity? Well, in addition to the usual, did people, did people get infections, et cetera, stuff like that, they checked knee MRIs to see if there was avascular necrosis or subchondral fractures on enrollment, and then they checked MRIs going forward, which is pretty cool. At 0, 12, and 24 months, patients got an MRI of their knee, and they graded them on a number of different things, cartilage volume, cartilage loss, trabecular echo sequencing. I don't know any of this stuff, but the radiology stuff was kind of neat in the sense that they could grade what, whether there was cartilage loss or not. This was a double-blind study. Both physicians who were seeing the patients and the patients themselves were unaware of which group they were in, and it was done in an attention-to-treat analysis. So what that means is there's people who discontinued, they're still analyzed as if they were in their original group. They did a number of assessments. I don't think we need to get into the specifics. SF36, 20-minute walk, chair stand test, etc. I think the take-home point for me was that their assessments were very thorough. The investigators in this study really got a good idea of how this osteoarthritis was affecting the patients, both radiographically, from pain, and from a quality of life perspective. Now, the primary outcomes 
We're changing the knee cartilage volume as assessed um, in the index compartment on their MRI scanning and changes in the Womack pain score. I like that too. So the two primary outcomes were whether or not patients felt better and whether or not there was any evidence of cartilage loss related to the steroid injections. They had a lot of other outcomes. All of them were considered secondary. And as we'll see later in the trial, I think they got into a little bit of trouble with this where they found a bunch of significant stuff that may have just been related to multiple hypothesis testing. Their statistics all seemed more or less appropriate, so let's get into talking about what kind of patients made it into this trial. So there are 445 patients assessed, 305 were excluded, mostly because of the radiographic grade of their knee. So they needed to be bad enough, but not too bad, and most people were not quite meeting that. Some of them didn't meet it for the Womack pain threshold as well, maybe not enough pain or too much pain. 140 were randomized, 70 in each group, and about 10 discontinued from both arms of the trial. Um, for a number of different reasons, um, I think that's about what you'd expect. So no serious red flags there. So what kind of patients were in this study? The median age was 59 years old, um, roughly in both groups. Uh, there was a slight women predominance, but not too much, 52%. Uh, predominantly a Caucasian, but only 60%. So there was minority involvement, which I always like to see. Other than that, um, I mean, people had a pain score that was in the range of someone who definitely would be meriting intraarticular injections. They all had lower 20-minute walk times than you'd like to see in this age group. They all had, you know, not terrible scores in the SF36, but medium scores, you know, 36 and 35. So those are the group of people who were affected by osteoarthritis, but were certainly not bedridden. And, and that's the kind of person that I would be injecting. So I think it's a relatively appropriate group for, to answer the question. So what did they find? Well, like I said, they did a lot of statistics, but as with all good trials, you can really boil this down to a couple main things. The first thing is that there was no change whatsoever in knee pain. People in the saline group actually did a little bit better for whatever that's worth, but it wasn't statistically significant. And so, end of the day, there was no difference in pain. There was no change in any of the secondary outcomes. So this did not make people feel better. It did not improve people's quality of life in an SF36. It did not improve the time for them to stand. It did not improve how far they could walk in 20 seconds. There was just no improvement from these injections. It didn't make you have less pain, and it didn't get you more mobile. More importantly, the rate of cartilage loss was different. So both in the index compartment, which is the one where they identified with the most significant OA, and the total mean cartilage thickness, both of those measures were worse in the group that got the injections. That's kind of concerning. The only significant findings so far from this study are that doing steroid injections results in cartilage loss, which is the opposite of what we want to see in osteoarthritis of the knee. Now, there's not too much else that's worth talking about past the headline stats there. They did have some pretty fancy pictures on page 1973 where they showed Womack pain scores, Womack function scores, stiffness scores, visual analog pain scores, 20-minute walks, chair stand time, like I said, they had a lot of ways they assessed these people, and it's really interesting to see. Essentially, everyone got better three months after their first injection, and then everyone stayed about where they were for the duration of the study. I think that's important. It shows you to some degree that doing anything made people feel better. and speaks again to the placebo response. But it's also interesting to see that there's no change over time. It's not like people in the, in the steroid group did better for three months and then they started to get worse, or the people in the sailing group continued to get better. Both groups got a little bit better from having something done at all to their knee and then stayed about where they were with no significant improvement. There's some other things like there's a significant difference in HbA1c levels between, between the groups that actually favored the group that was getting steroid put into their knee. But like I said earlier, they just tested a lot of stuff 
And, you know, if you're testing a lot of things at a significance level of 5%, it's going to take you about 14 iterations before you find something that was really just due to chance. They didn't do any statistical adjustment for multiple hypothesis testing. So unfortunately, we're stuck with that result and not really knowing what to do with it. So before I get to limitations, let me give you the author's conclusion. They said, among patients with symptomatic knee osteoarthritis, two years of intraarticular triamcinolone compared with intraarticular saline resulted in significantly greater cartilage volume loss and no significant difference in knee pain. These findings do not support this treatment for patients with symptomatic knee osteoarthritis. If you're a rheumatologist and hearing that doesn't give you chills, I don't think you're paying enough attention. This is a big thing that we do a lot to a lot of patients. And if this trial were the only data we had, all indications is that we're not helping people and we're probably hurting them on an enormous scale at an enormous cost to society. But there's limitations. So let's talk about that. For one, it's not totally clear that they powered this study to detect a difference in pain. So 70 patients gave them a power to detect a 2.3 change on a Womack scale, which is roughly, I guess, a 10% improvement in pain. That seems to be strong enough to me. Um, if we're doing an improvement in pain by less than 10% and we're not meeting any of these other functional assessments like the SF36, chair stand, then I would still say that that's a failure. But perhaps with more patients, they would have found a smaller benefit, I guess. A more important caveat, though, is that they're assessing patients every three months. Why is that a problem? Well, when I inject people's knees, I don't tell them, hey, you're going to feel great six months from now. I say, hey, I hope this helps. You may have one or two months where you feel really good, and then the pain might start to come back. And that is what patients tell me. When you talk to your patient, they say, yeah, it lasted for eight weeks, and then I started to feel my symptoms again. So what I really wish this trial had done, if I could change one thing, is to introduce a, an assessment period at six-week intervals. Because then we would have known six weeks after the injection it didn't work. So for all we know, patients were getting two months of benefit, and then the pain was creeping back up. Now you'd think that that kind of benefit would show up on the other evaluations they did, like the SF36. But, you know, they should have done that, I think, to be a little more thorough. My other big caveat is with this MRI assessment of cartilage damage. Now you should always be careful of surrogate outcomes. No patients really care or know about how thick the cartilage in their knee is. They care about how far they can walk, how easy it is to stand up, and how much pain they're in. And if that cartilage loss isn't correlated with those symptoms, then it doesn't really matter. And there was no difference in those more patient-centric outcomes in this trial. So I think it remains to be seen whether or not that cartilage loss that is statistically significant is actually clinically significant. And then finally, as with a lot of trials that, is, that test an established practice, they didn't really include a no-treatment group. They compared a treatment to a placebo treatment, and what I really would have liked to have seen is a third group that had nothing done. Would have been absolutely fascinating to see how powerful the placebo response was in this particular study. The other caveat is that there are other trials that have seen a difference. There's a 2003 paper in Arthritis and Rheumatism. It was a randomized controlled trial, much like this one, on 34 patients and 34 patients getting steroids versus placebo. Now in that trial, people's range of motion did improve, but that wasn't significant at two years and they didn't see any evidence of cartilage loss. Now, they didn't do MRIs, they did x-rays, so it's possible that they just weren't quite sensitive enough to pick it up. And again, I wasn't terribly convinced by their stats. Outside of that, there's a lot of garbagey data. 
And thankfully, there's a review meta-analysis that summarizes all of them that I'd like to talk about right now to kind of put a little more perspective on this. It's called The Comparative Effectiveness of Pharmacologic Interventions for Knee Osteoarthritis, a Systematic Review and Network Meta-Analysis. It was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2015 by Banuru et al. So I want to go through this one briefly because I spent quite a bit of time already on the first paper. And to be honest, I don't like meta-analyses. So what do they do? They looked at all randomized controlled trials, which I like, involving human participants with primary knee OA. They looked at all the interventions that were done, Tylenol, NSAIDs, corticosteroid injections, placebo injections, um, hyaluronic acid injections. And then they did this kind of fancy network meta-analysis where they didn't just compare the trials to each other, they made a big web. And you can imagine that some trials compared, say, Tylenol to steroid injections, and others did steroid injections to you know, an NSAID. Now, even though no one compared Tylenol to an NSAID, you could infer the difference between them if you assume the transitive property is correct. That is a big assumption. And to be honest, this is the kind of thing you should never do. But in this particular field, I think it's really interesting because we have so many trials assessing all of these different uh, interventions and no trial that assessed all of them. So, you know, kudos to the authors for trying. So overall, they found a lot of studies. They had 4,000 citations, 3,600 were excluded through the title, 137 wound up being included though. Really, really impressive. And so once you take those studies, you can pool the placebo group from one and the corticosteroid group from another, and then the hyaluronic acid group from another. They wound up getting 3,600 patients who had placebo injections, 900 with corticosteroid injections. Not bad. And then all the other medicines were varying quantities. So, you know, 8,000 with oral placebo, 1,800 with Tylenol, etc. What did they find? Well, for starters, most of the studies were of moderate quality. In particular, studies after 2000 reported better methods, and the celecoxib trials were larger and had a lower risk of bias. The celecoxib trials, of course, were drug-sponsored and were, accordingly, better trials. They have a very nice figure 2 at the bottom of page 49 that um, covers the risk of bias. My take-home is that there was a pretty large amount of bias um, inherent to all of these study designs, but they were all randomized controlled trials, and, you know, kudos to them for finding them. So for one, they found that for pain outcomes, everything was better than oral placebo. So getting Tylenol, better than oral placebo. Getting Celecoxib, better than oral placebo. Getting intraarticular placebo, better than oral placebo. That goes further, though, in the sense that not only was oral placebo worse than intraarticular placebo, getting any kind of injection at all was better than any kind of oral medicine. So all of the NSAIDs that we use and rely on, none of them have been shown to be better than intraarticular placebo in this network meta-analysis. They have a reasonably complicated chart that's kind of hard to read that goes through all of the comparisons between you know, eight or nine different interventions. But the take-home point for me was that oral placebos weren't really good for osteoarthritis. Oral medications seemed to help, but none of them were any better than placebo injections. Both hyaluronic acid and steroid injections were better in this meta-analysis than placebo, which does go against the paper that we just discussed. So that was a lot to talk about. Let's kind of bring it home and kind of combine all this information. Overall, in the best randomized controlled trial to date, we found no difference between intraarticular steroid injection and intraarticular placebo injection. Based on a meta-analysis of prior randomized controlled trials to date, 
Placebo injections are almost certainly better than oral therapy of pretty much any variety, and any therapy is better than oral placebo. I would assume, therefore, that any therapy is better than no therapy. So where does that leave us as clinicians? You could almost argue that the ethical thing to do, if you're going from an ends-justify-the-means perspective, is to tell patients that you're going to give them a super-powerful injection, it's going to cure their knee pain, and then inject them with saline. Because then they don't have this possible risk of cartilage loss, they don't have to have the risk of renal failure or GI bleeds from taking NSAIDs, and they get all the benefits of having an intraarticular steroid injection. That's not, strictly speaking, ethical, and also not how I practice. I do these injections, and when I do them, I tell a patient, you know, I have had patients who responded beautifully to these, and I think it's a therapy that's worth trying, because that's true. I now tell them that we're not sure if there are side effects related to cartilage loss. We're looking into that, but it is a consideration. I then give them the injection, and I have them come back in three months to see me again. And if they say that they felt great for a couple months... I think it's reasonable to give them another injection. If they tell me it wore off after two weeks, then I tell them, look, like I said at the beginning, there's this potential risk of cartilage loss, didn't help you for very long, and I don't think we should do it again. I think that's consistent with how most people practice. But this paper has changed my enthusiasm for doing these kinds of injections. It's entirely possible that we're not giving patients any benefit over placebo, and we are causing worsening loss of cartilage in their knees. The alternative of doing nothing also doesn't seem appropriate. So anyways, I really enjoyed talking about this trial. Thanks for tuning in to listen. Be sure to tune in next week when we discuss the main Ritzen 2 trial, which answers that pesky question of how often should I be dosing rituximab? Kind of. We'll talk about that next week, though. Thanks again, and have a great week.